0: The views expressed in this podcast are solely those of the speaker. This podcast is for informational purposes only and is not a substitute for professional medical advice from your own physician. I'm Greg Schroeder from the Rothman Institute, uh, and we're going to discuss the best treatment for cervical myelopathy, anterior versus posterior, and what makes us make those decisions today. Uh, I'm here with a great panel of experts.
1: Uh, my name is Scott Blumenthal, and uh, I'm an orthopedic spine surgeon at the Center for Disc Replacement at Texas Back Institute. So you've already heard my bias for cervical disc disease.
2: Well, um, my name is Rolando Garcia. I'm an orthopedic spine sin- surgeon in Miami, Florida. And thank you for having me here.
0: All right, so when we we talk about cervical myelopathy, obviously we're talking about compression on the spinal cord, and there's lots of different reasons that you can have compression on the spinal cord. So when, when you look at it, what are in your guys' opinions, the reason to absolutely do something from the
1: front? It's interesting. I think most of the myelopathy that we see in the U.S. is is early stage because patients come to the doctor sooner here. When I did some work in China, the patients with myelopathy had myelopathy like I'd never seen before. Mm -hmm. So we see someone with axial neck pain, some radiculopathy, and a few pathological reflexes, we call that myelopathy. I tend to see, those are most the ones I see, and if they're one or two level, I do them from the front. My bias, unless they've got too much degeneration or deformity, is to preserve emotion with disc replacement, Um, but certainly one and two level, front, three level, bubble, four level, probably posterior, or significant deformity.
2: Uh, yeah, I, I. First of all, I think that is a great question. The, uh, the absolute indication going anteriorly, I like to treat where the disease is located. So, there are circumstances in which the the disease is definitely anterior. Mm-hmm. There is um, uh, issue with the sagittal alignment, and obviously the multiple levels is another mm-hmm. factor. There's multiple other uh, additional factors, but uh, primarily I treat the the cause of the compression, the cause of the disease, and if that happens to be anteriorly, then uh, that would be my primary indication.
1: Unless it's OPLL. Yeah, I was going to say, so let me. it's <laughs> yeah. OPLL.
2: So, yeah.
0: So if it's OPLL, though, even though the primary compression is in the front, you go from the back, or you still yes. you do go from the back. Yes. Um, what about you? Do you still go from the the back for OPLL?
1: I I I think that you know when you when you go on the risk reward ratio, the the risks of going from the front with OPLL is so high and we've got a a large, a growing Asian population in North Texas. So we're starting to see a lot more OPLL. Mm -hmm. So yeah, those pretty much from behind.
0: What what about the patient who comes in, um, sagittal alignment is okay, um, you know, for the sake of things, a 60 year old male, you know, significant myelopathy, fine. He's got, you know, five, six and six, seven, but he's also got retrovertebral issues. Is that something where you say, listen, I'm gonna do a one level corpectomy uh, or is that one where you would then say, all right, listen, rather than doing a corpectomy, I think I'm going to do something from the back? Uh,
2: good and uh I see myself increasingly getting CT scans regardless of whether they, they come in with MRIs to assess th- that that very issue. I, I think in terms of um, addressing any any type of, of bony ridge, bony osteophyte, I think that I see myself being more aggressive in terms of address, uh, going with a corpectomy, mm-hmm. plus the fact that I think that now with uh, some of the, the tools that we have available to us, we're able to do a much better job of addressing sagittal alignment when we are able to, to do that. Of course, that brings the issue that in some of these cases, regardless of how much we try to avoid it, we have to go not just in the front or in the back,
1: but on both sides. Right, right. Yeah, I, I tend it, it's very interesting that you bring it up at a timely point because I was talking with the fellows, and they were asking about corpectomies, and I said I can't remember the last time that I've needed to do a corpectomy since most cervical disease is at the disc level. Well, the next patient walks in the clinic, has a herniation behind the was either C7 or T1 body. Well, you can't tell which disc it came from. Yep. There's no way you're going to be able to get that without doing a corpectomy. So you know, like i tell the fellows you can't be a one trick pony you got to you got to address the patient's pathology on an individualized basis i
2: would like to get you the point of view of both of you at what point in terms of anterior decompression do you feel that you be you're compelled to go in the back and 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 address things as well in terms of st- stability one level corpectomy two level corpectomy
0: So this is an interesting topic because we have very differing opinions at the Rothman Institute. Okay. So, um, from my standpoint, anytime I do more than a three-level ACDF, so if I do a four-level ACDF, they get a four-level ACDF, uninstrumented in the front, and then uh, screws in the back. Um, You know, Dr. Hillebrand, on the other hand, will do a four-level ACDF um, that is a standalone four-level ACDF. We presented the data at NASS last year on kind of his series of patients for this. And you know, in general, through a couple of years, they all have non-unions, but they—so what? They all do very, very well. So I, I think the—you the so should qu- be using metal
1: cages, so you can't tell if they have a non-union. <laughs> follow them clinically.
0: <laughs> so I, th- I think the the question is really challenging because when we look back at you know, pseudarthrosis and do pseudarthroses matter? I think before we were doing plates, it was clearly a problem or cages if they had a a significant pseudarthrosis, but now uh, you know maybe over 10 years you know those people will turn out to have a problem Um, but other than that um, right now it's not in the short term when we look at corpectomies uh, so again I mean I think uh, from my standpoint if I do more than a one-level corpectomy the patient is getting something in the back I mean that's just I I don't feel comfortable doing it uh, but you know the literature that we published from our institution said realistically up to two-level corpectomies you can do and they do pretty well without uh, instrumentation in the back once you get to more than two levels then it becomes a huge problem so we again um, you know Dr. Hillebrand will sometimes do a two-level corpectomy without doing something in the back um, where myself and some of the other guys every time you get more than one level um, you're getting screws in the back.
1: I think it's a great question and the two trends that I see, in it's perhaps even more prominent in the lumbar, but in the cervical, is uh, we're doing dexa scans on these patients, and if they've got sufficient bone quality, I think a multi-level anterior construct will hold up just fine. The other thing I'm seeing more and more uh, in our practice are the, the quote-unquote standalone or integrated uh, cages, the the cages that also have the screws in the front, and uh, that. I, biomechanically seems to be as sound uh, as uh, allograft in a plate, uh, but perhaps may have less uh, retropharyngeal issues, swallowing difficulties, things like that. So, so are you are you using those on a regular basis? Um, personally, yes. Okay. And I'd say, you know, of the surgeons at Texas back, probably a third do and probably two thirds are still doing P cages and sure. plates.
0: So I think, uh, I, I don't think in the last four years I've seen a single one of them done at Jefferson. Um, so, we don't, for the most part, we don't do mm-hmm. any of them. We're st- we don't even uh, do cages. We are still allograft, local autograft, uh, and a plate.
2: Mm-hmm. Uh, one thing that I wanted to cover briefly is uh, I have a personal bias that if someone comes in with cervical myelopathy, I decide to go posteriorly and they have a fair amount of neck pain, M- my procedure remains a laminectomy and fusion. When do you to integrate uh, laminoplasty on those patients?
0: For the most part, I mean, so the fellows at Jefferson call it the Jefferson Special. We do a C3 to C6 decompression with usually a dome of C7 and a C3 to T1 fusion. We usually do lateral mass screws up through six and then pedicle screws at seven and one. Uh, That is the vast majority of the time, that is my answer. I think I've done a a laminoplasty once in the last probably eight months, nine months, that was really just me... um, the, the patient came in and they were a perfect candidate, right? You know, they had, didn't have neck pain. They had no ridiculous symptoms. Um, it was a pure myelopathy and it was multi-level. Um, and from my standpoint, may, maybe this isn't true or not, I don't even do it for OPLL because I'm concerned with OPLL that if you have that micro-motion, uh, then the OPLL can get worse. So instead for OPLL, I think that's a clear indication to me to fuse it to stop the OPLL?
1: Yeah, I think it's very training dependent. Um, we've got a couple young surgeons in our practice that uh, trained in a the fellowship. They did a lot of laminoplasties and they've got their, you know, quote unquote special. Mm-hmm. But I think the, the older surgeons tend to do more, uh, like, like you described, is, uh, screws and, and wide laminectomy.